All right, Mount Pleasant and Impact family and friends, it's good to be with you. If you have a Bible, I want you to take it and go with me to the Gospel of Matthew in the 27th chapter. And when you find that, I want you to just hold it ready for a moment. Because before we look at the text, I want to just share a brief word of encouragement with everyone listening. You know, this coronavirus has brought an unprecedented time as our country and our world has in many ways shut down overnight. And you add to that the fact that it seems like every time we look online or we turn on the news, we hear a different message from a different person about what the future is going to bring. Uh, the end result of that can be a lot of fear for all of us. But as we gather for worship this morning, I want to just remind you, I know that you already know this, but just remind you that God is still on the throne and that He's still in control. He's never going to abandon us. He's never going to forsake us. And my encouragement to you today is to make sure that you are taking time each and every day to pray. You know, if you're home alone, then maybe you can uh, put together a digital prayer meeting with some of your family or friends uh, over the phone or on the computer. Uh, if you're a couple at home, then you can pray together. If you're a family at home, I certainly think that praying together is one of the most important things that you can do. I don't think also that there's anything that can strengthen our faith, can strengthen our relationships, and strengthen our families more than time spent in prayer. But as we pray, let's just remember that we're getting the great opportunity to connect with God in a personal way, and the result of that is our fear can be diminished. Our fears can be assuaged by knowing that we're connected to God. I think it was General George Patton who once said, courage is fear that has said its prayers. I think that's a great statement. Courage is fear that has said its prayers. God is still in control and we can be confident in that. And so before we turn our attention to the text, I want you just to bow with me and I'm gonna pray a brief prayer for all of us. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that we're together in worship today and uh, as we gather together i want to just pause and pray that you would cover us with a, a sense of your presence and your control and your power uh, that will help remove any fear that we might be feeling today and i pray that you would help us to continually turn to you and to make prayer a central part of our life and a central part of each and every day uh, as we move forward not necessarily knowing exactly what tomorrow will bring. And I pray that as a result of that prayer, uh, we will feel peace and comfort in our hearts. Thank you for always being there, for your promise to always hear our prayers. We love you and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, today we're going to continue our verse-by-verse -verse journey through the Gospel of Matthew that we're calling Let's Talk About Jesus by looking at the second part of a message called the characters of the cross. If you were with us for part one of this message, and actually it was two weeks ago because last week uh, my son Andrew brought us a message about the crucifixion, but if you were with us two weeks ago for part one of this message, you'll remember that I told you about a mysterious painting that was the subject of a William Barrett novel called The Shape of Illusion. It was a painting of a scene that takes place right in Matthew chapter 27. It is a picture of Jesus being led away by Roman soldiers through the streets of Jerusalem on the way to the cross. And the reason the painting was so mysterious is that even though it was painted some 300 years earlier, 
people who viewed the painting were able to see themselves as one of the characters in that scene. Some saw themselves as a Roman soldier or one of the Roman soldiers. Others saw themselves in the faces of the crowd that lined the streets, faces filled with anger and hatred. Some saw themselves in the religious leaders who were responsible for orchestrating Jesus' death. But regardless of where anyone saw themselves in the painting, they were horrified by what they saw. Now, again, if you were able to be with us for that first message, you know we talked about three different characters of the cross. If you weren't able to be with us, let me just remind you of who those characters were. First of all, we talked about Judas Iscariot, who, when he realized on the morning of Jesus' death what he had done, felt such great remorse that he tried to, in some ways, undo what he had done. He tried to return the 30 pieces of silver back to the religious leaders, but they basically said, hey, listen, what's done is done. There's nothing we can do about it. And so Judas, overwhelmed with guilt, threw those 30 pieces of silver down at their feet and went outside, and he hung himself. The lesson we learned from Judas in that moment was really twofold. Uh, The first one is this. Sin never brings the satisfaction that it promises, regardless of what the circumstance is. That's just an immutable truth that we need to remember. Sin never, ever brings the satisfaction that it promises. The second truth that we learn from Judas is this. Never give up on God because God is never going to give up on you. When Judas realized what he was, had done, the full uh, detail of what he had done, he was so overwhelmed with remorse. I think a better word is guilt. He was so overwhelmed with guilt uh, that he just gave up on himself. And when he gave up on himself, he hung himself, which means ultimately he gave up on God. But I want to encourage you to remember that no matter what's going on in your life, uh, never give up on God because God is never going to give up on you. The second character that we looked at in uh, our first message on the characters of the cross was not a single character, but it was the crowd that surrounded Jesus on that day. This was the same crowd that met Jesus with cheers and exultation when he entered the city of Jerusalem just days before. But now, because of the influence of the religious leaders, the text in Matthew 27 tells us that they worked their way through the crowd and they spread their negative message among the people. Because of their influence, the crowd turned against Jesus. Even when Pilate gave them the opportunity to secure Jesus's freedom, they still turned against him. And if there's a lesson that we learned from the crowd that day, it's just a simple lesson. Be sure to think for yourself. Always think for yourself. You know, this crowd, probably many, if not most of them, were familiar with Jesus, and they had already had experience with Jesus, and it was positive. Uh, That's why they exalted him and cheered for him when he entered the city of Jerusalem. But now they listened to the religious leaders, and the influence of the religious leaders turned them against him. We can't make our decisions about life based on the opinion of others. We've got to always think for ourselves. And then finally, the third character that we talked about in that first message is Pontius Pilate, who knew, even though he was as far from God as you could possibly be, he knew that there was no reason to arrest Jesus. There was certainly no reason to punish Jesus. But in the end, he basically just chose to say, whatever happens to him, it's not my fault. And so he abdicated his position of authority and he abdicated his position of leadership and just went along to get along and said, hey, at the end of the day, this isn't my fault. 
And so those are the characters we talked about in that first message. As I mentioned earlier, then last week my son Andrew shared a message about the actual crucifixion. And the reason why we've broken these messages about the characters of the cross up that way is because in the first message I talked about characters that were involved with Jesus before his crucifixion. And the message I'm going to share today, part two, talks about characters that were involved with Jesus during the crucifixion and after the crucifixion. And so if you're someone who likes to take notes, I want you to write down the very first character that we're going to look at, or characters rather, we're going to look at as we continue the message, and that's the soldiers. I've got my Bible open, as I'm sure you do, to Matthew chapter 27, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 27 down through verse 31. You follow along. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. And really honestly, friends, what we see here is the fulfillment of what Jesus had said all the way back in Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, when he told his disciples, we are going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. But I want you to just try to think about that scene with the soldiers that we just read about. In verse 27 of Matthew 27, Matthew uses the phrase, the whole company of soldiers. He used that phrase to describe the soldiers who surrounded Jesus in that moment. In the original language of the New Testament, that phrase, the whole company of soldiers, comes from a single Greek word, and that's the Greek word spira. And the meaning of the word spira is one-tenth of a legion. In other words, on the most practical level, that means that there were about 600 soldiers surrounding Jesus in this moment. They led him into the praetorium, that was where Pilate lived, and they did it so that they could ridicule him and humiliate him. Remember, they put a robe on his shoulders, they put a crown of thorn on his head, of thorns on his head, and they put a staff in his right hand. They knelt down in front of him and they mocked him and they humiliated him. Basically, we see these soldiers getting caught up in this mob mentality that surrounded Jesus in this moment. And as a result, they lost all sense of dignity and all sense of decorum. And they allowed themselves to just become a part of the anger and the hatred that surrounded Jesus in that moment. Now, you know, there are some people who might try to excuse the soldiers by saying, you know, they shouldn't be blamed for what they did. They were Roman soldiers. They didn't even know who Jesus was. They were acting out of ignorance. But while at least portions of that might be true, the bottom line is, in that moment, they went far beyond the limit of their job description. Their job was to guard Jesus while the final details of his execution were being prepared. But what they did was they mocked him and they humiliated him for no other reason than their own entertainment. And so if there's a lesson to be learned from the soldiers on that day, in that setting, it's just the importance of taking Jesus seriously. Let me ask you a question. Do you think 
there are ways that we mock Jesus today? How about when we say that Jesus is the king of our life and yet we live our lives by our own will and our own decisions? How about when we sing songs that say that Jesus is Lord and we talk about in those songs of bowing down before him and worshiping him and yet all the while we harbor resentment and anger and bitterness and unforgiveness in our hearts. All the while, while we sing those kinds of songs celebrating Jesus, we have hidden sin in our lives. The truth is we would never mock Jesus in the way these soldiers did, but we mock him when we call him Lord, and yet we give no thought to him as we go through our daily lives. You know, the word Lord in the New Testament that's used so often with regard to Jesus is the Greek word kurios. And literally it describes someone who belongs to another. Whenever I take someone's confession of faith when they're being baptized, I always have them repeat these words after me. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I confess him as the Lord of my life. And when people say I confess him as the Lord of my life, they're saying I confess that my life belongs to Jesus. And yet if we live our lives with no thought of Jesus, then we're mocking him. These soldiers mock Jesus by not taking him seriously. There are times in our lives when we mock him by doing the very same thing. And so as people of faith, we need to make sure that we always, always are serious about Jesus. As we continue on through the message, if you want to write down next to number two, or if you're taking notes, write down next to number two, the bystanders. I'm going to pick up the text where we left off, and I'm going to start reading again in verse 32. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. I'm going to stop there in verse 44. After the soldiers finished mocking Jesus, they led him through the streets of the city to a place called Golgotha. And it was at Golgotha where he was nailed to a cross and suspended between heaven and earth to die an excruciating death. While he was on the cross, though, the mocking continued. It continued from the bystanders, the priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders, even from the criminals who were being crucified on either side of him. If we keep on reading, beginning again in verse 45 through verse 49, this is what we see. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. 
Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. We'll stop there in verse 49. You know, this honestly is one of the most amazing parts of Jesus' story to me, and for all the wrong reasons. Many, if not most, of the people who continued to mock Jesus, beginning with the religious leaders, on down to the ordinary bystanders, are people who had heard Jesus speak. They had heard him teach. They had listened to his sermons and his parables and his lessons. They had seen the miracles he performed, and yet they didn't have a clue about what any of it meant. They had missed everything important about Jesus. One example would be this, when Jesus cried out the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't calling out to Elijah. He was calling out to God by repeating the words, the literal words of Psalm 22, which was a prophecy about his death that included his being mocked and being beaten and being scorned. In fact, if you go back to that psalm and read it in its entirety, you see that. You even see some of the same words that were spoken by those in the crowd to taunt Jesus. An example would be Psalm 22 and verse 8 that says, He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And when Jesus cried out those words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was referring in that moment to a literal moment. Because as difficult as it may be for you and me to imagine, when Jesus was on the cross bearing the sins of all the world, when he was bearing your sin and my sin, when all the guilt of the world that was, excuse me, when all the guilt of the world was placed on him, God turned his back on him. God turned his back on Jesus in that moment. This is the reality of the prophet's words in Isaiah 53, 6, where we read, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. This is what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 when he said about Jesus, God made him, Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And here's the deal. All of this happened right before the eyes of all of these bystanders, but they just didn't get it. Jesus was dying for their sin in that moment, but they didn't realize it. He was speaking some of the most spiritually significant words that have ever been spoken, but they just didn't understand it. And so the lesson for us that we learn from the bystanders is when it comes to Jesus, we need to pay attention. It's really just that simple. We need to pay attention. I say that because I know that there are times when we hear the word of God, when we hear the message of God, just like in this moment when I'm literally teaching you from the scriptures, there are moments when we hear the word and the message of God, but at the end of the day, we just don't get it. We hear about the grace of God, and yet we wear ourselves out continuing to try to earn His approval. We hear about the forgiveness of God, and yet we somehow convince ourselves that while God is willing to forgive everyone else for everything that they've ever done, there's something about our sin that's just too bad or too far gone for us to receive God's forgiveness. We hear about how God loves us with a tender love because He's our Heavenly Father, but we never allow ourselves to see Him 
as our Father. The bottom line is, we hear the Word of God, but for whatever reason, we just don't get it. It doesn't penetrate our hearts and our minds in a way that makes a difference in our lives. And so the message here that we learn from the bystanders is when it comes to Jesus, listen, we need to pay attention. We're going to continue on, and you can write down next to number three, the women. I'm going to read verses 55 and 56 now. In Matthew chapter 27, verses 55 and 56, it says this, Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now I want to be sure and say that just because Matthew says these women were watching from a distance, that doesn't mean that they were not completely committed to Jesus. And I can say that with great confidence because actually in a parallel passage to this, John chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, John literally tells us that earlier the women who followed Jesus were standing near the cross, maybe even at the foot of the cross. In fact, these are what those words say. This is again Matthew 19, verses 25 through 27. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son, and to, this, this, and to the disciple, rather, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. And of course, Jesus is talking about John, who wrote these words. John was the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, honestly, folks, I, I don't know why Mary, the mother of Jesus, is not named specifically in Matthew's account. Maybe it's as simple as the fact that she was among the many, the, the many women, rather, that he references in verse 55. I can tell you what I believe on a personal level. I lean toward the belief that she wasn't named in Matthew's account with those women who were watching from a distance because there was nothing that was going to get Mary away from the cross where her son was dying. Maybe the women mentioned in Matthew who were watching at a distance had moved to that place because it had become too painful for them to watch the death of Jesus. But I can't even imagine Mary being willing to leave her son. But beyond that, here's the most important thing that I want you to see and understand from Matthew's words. At the end of verse 55, Matthew writes that these women had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. That's the way it reads in my NIV Bible. They'd followed him to care for his needs. That phrase, care for his needs, comes from a single word in the original language. It's the Greek word diakonao which simply means to minister to or to serve. And the reality or meaning of that word reveals their hearts. It reveals the love and the devotion that they had for Jesus. Their love and their devotion for Jesus was so strong and so courageous that they were with him at the darkest moment of his life. Now notice in Matthew's account that none of the twelve are mentioned. Judas has already gone out and hanged himself. By this time, Peter has denied that he knows Jesus. He's done that three times. Now we know that John, from that earlier account in John chapter 19, we know that John, at least at a time, was near to the cross, but we don't know where he is now. And all the rest of the disciples are off hiding in fear for their lives. 
Well, I can't read this part of Jesus' story and not think about some words Jesus spoke all the way back in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 38. And this is what he said. He said, and anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And so if there's a lesson to be learned from these women, it's this. You should write this down somewhere. When it comes to Jesus, faithfulness matters. Faithfulness matters. Because at the darkest moment in Jesus' life, not only did the disciples not have the courage to risk bearing their own crosses, they didn't even have the courage to stand with Jesus when he bore his cross. Faithfulness matters when it comes to following Jesus. And we can't let fear or anything else in the world ever cause us to turn away from him. Let me give you one last thing to write down. You can write down next to number four, the centurion. And I'm going a little bit out of chronological order here, I know, or you'll know that when I tell you the text we're going to read, but I wanted to make sure that I ended the message by talking about the centurion. I'm going to go back and read Matthew 27, verse 45 through 54. You can follow along. I, I read a portion of this earlier, but I want to read it again so we can move uh, in a way, uh, through the text in a way that makes sense. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness covered all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And when the centurion and those who were with him, or excuse me, when the centurion, those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. When this soldier witnessed all that had happened at the death of Jesus, he could only come to one conclusion, and that is that Jesus is the son of God. Now, the sad thing to me, and I'm sure to many, is that we don't know what that centurion ultimately did with that information. 
We don't know if he himself became a follower of Christ. But we do know that at that moment, he understood exactly who Jesus was. And the one thing that we learn from him, and the one thing that I want to make sure that everyone hears, is that we need to follow his example. What we have here is a man who in light of the evidence that was available to him came to the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God. I'm going to close the message in a little bit of a different way. And I'm going to share with you just quickly some things that I have shared countless times over the years to countless people. Because I know that during a time like this, we have our church family, our Mount Pleasant and our Impact family watching in. We have Mount Pleasant and Impact friends watching in. But I think that we also probably have people who may not normally go to church and certainly may not be that familiar with Mount Pleasant watching along. And I, I'm not sure that any of us could know what your spiritual condition is. And so I'm going to tell you the three most important things that you can hear today. And that is the three things that I always share with people when it comes to understanding what we need to know and do in order to make sure that we are right with God. We don't know if the centurion ever got his life right with God, but we do know that there was a moment when the reality of who Jesus was was so clear to him that he said that surely he was the Son of God. I would hope and pray that you would have a moment like that as well, and maybe this can help you along the way. The first thing I want to talk to you about is the reality of separation. You know, the Bible makes it really clear to us that all of us have one thing in common, and that is none of us are perfect. We're all sinners. We've all made mistakes and failed in our lives. In fact, Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 says, For all have sinned, all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. And because of that reality, we live in separation from God on our own, based solely on our own merit and what we have to offer, what we bring to the table. All of us live in separation with God because the Bible teaches us that God is perfect and holy, and a perfect and holy God can't live in fellowship with an imperfect and unholy man, and so sin separates us from God. And that's the reality of everyone's life. There's not a single thing we can do about it on our own. You can be the most honest, most upright, most moral person that ever lived. You can be the kindest, most generous, most benevolent person that ever lived. But all of us are sinners, and that sin separates us from God. And so the first word is separation. The second word is substitution. The Bible tells us that because God loves us so much, He doesn't want there to be a separation between us and Him. He, he created us to live in fellowship with us. But when sin separated us, that wasn't possible. And so God stepped in and did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He sent His Son, Jesus, into the world to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin so that our sin could be forgiven. That sin that separates from God could be forgiven. Uh, one of the verses that makes that really clear is Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13, where Paul writes and says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. You who once were far away, separated from God because of sin, have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ, through the blood of Christ, because Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalty for your sin. That's the only way it can happen. And so the second word is substitution. We're separated from God because of our sin, but he loves us so much 
that he wanted to do something about that separation, he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross as a substitute for us and to pay the penalty for our sin. The third word is salvation. Now that we understand those two things, what do I need to know or what do I need to do to make sure that my life is right with God? Well, the Bible says, and probably the most well-known verse in all the Bible is the best one to quote. The Bible says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. So if you put your faith and trust in Christ, then you can have your sin forgiven and you can live in a right relationship with God. And so what it comes down to is this, just being willing to admit that you're a sinner, that's the reality of all of our lives, to believe in Jesus. I mean, put your faith and trust in Jesus. Be willing to confess that belief in Jesus. Be willing to demonstrate that that faith and trust is real by repenting of your sins, which is just simply a word that means being willing to turn away from our sin and turn to God. And then we demonstrate it also by being willing to obey the command to be baptized, which is the physical expression of our faith. If you're listening to me this morning as we talk about Jesus, and you don't know for sure that your life is right with God, and you're frightened, you're concerned, you're anxious about all the things that are happening around you, and you don't have a peace inside of you because you know where your eternal security is, then I really encourage you to reach out to our online host today and let them know that you'd like to make a decision for Christ and we will reach out to you and we'll help you with that. There's nothing that would be more fulfilling to me today than to know that because you heard the message of Jesus and you took it seriously, you paid attention, you took it seriously, you're willing today to give your life to Christ. Your life can be changed for all eternity today. I'm so glad that all of you joined us for this message, and I want you to join me now in prayer as we close. Father in heaven, I thank you for a chance to share from God's word today with these people that I love so dearly, my Mount Pleasant and my Impact Church family. And I pray, Father, that you would cover them with your presence and your blessing and the assurance of your presence and your blessing in their lives right now. And I, I pray that you would help all of us to be so very thankful for what Jesus was willing to do for us when he came and died as a substitute, took our place on the cross. And right now, I pray that if there's anyone listening to me who doesn't have their life right with God, who doesn't feel confidence or security in terms of their spiritual life, that you would lead them to take the step of reaching out to someone who can help. Thank you so much for Jesus. We love you and we pray all these things in his name. Amen.